You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special mom in your life. And what better way than with the Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets that are perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their advanced eye care duo brightens, awakens, and firms the skin around your eyes, while the golden glow body trio nourishes and smooths the skin all over. Both sets are packaged in giftable boxes. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. And the best part? For a limited time, you can save up to $46 on Osea's sets. Plus, get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. This Mother's Day, get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. Go to OseaMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off site-wide. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. On this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast, I'm excited to welcome a true disruptive force in the world of philanthropy. Never one to shy away from controversy, Dan Pallotta is the founder of Pallotta Teamworks, which invented the multi-day AIDS rides and breast cancer three-day events, the president of Advertising for Humanity, and the author of three best-selling books. Dan's 2013 TED Talk entitled, the way we think about charity is dead wrong has been viewed more than 5 million times and has been ranked as one of the 100 most persuasive TED Talks of all time. Dan is deeply committed to transforming the way our culture thinks about giving, and I'm thrilled he could join us here today. Dan, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. And I just have to tell you before we start that Judith Light and I did a podcast recording a few weeks ago, and she talks about you um, in that podcast, um, so everybody should go back and check that out. But I have to tell the story again because I um, was deciding to have a career change, leaving marketing and doing something else, and I was over at Judith's house for dinner, and in the middle of dinner, I'm having this conversation with Judith and her family, and they said, you know who Dan Pallotta is? He's a good friend of ours. You have to hear his TED Talk. So in the middle of dinner, they pull out their uh, their phone or whatever, and they find your TED Talk, and they play it for 20 minutes while we're eating. <laughs> and that changed my life and my career and my trajectory. So um, you are very responsible for the last five years of my life. So thank you. Oh, thanks for saying so. That sounds just like Judith and company. They're it's an amazing. She's an amazing person. Uh, she is an amazing person. Um, so 
since this is kind of a Broadway-oriented podcast, um, the first thing I actually want to ask you is about your love of theater, because I know that you are a theater goer and fan. Um, so I want to ask you, what does theater mean to you and to your family? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, there's this intimacy with whatever it is, you know, if you're in a small theater, right, it's 500 people, 1,000 people. If you're in a big theater, it's bigger than that. But it's... Um, you're, you're having this um, common experience of hysterical humor or grief or loss or love or anger. You're, you're having that experience together. There's, there's just, there's nothing else like that. Um, you know, we've been to Broadway lots with the kids to see um, oh, you know, Lion King and um, Cinderella and, you know, all the, all the kid things. The last time I was there, I, you know, I used to go, I, 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 would try, I would go to New York from California a couple times a year. And Clive Davis is a good friend of mine. And we had this thing where on a, we'd go to see four Broadway shows, you know, two on a Saturday and uh, one on a Sunday and I guess three, three shows. And, and then I had my kids and I couldn't, <laughs> Broadway stopped for me. But the last thing I saw was Springsteen on Broadway. And, um, you know, that was- How just, great was that? That was just a, amazing. We had great seats and to see him in a small venue like that. It's, it's, it's the shared experience. It's the humanity of shared experience. Um, and we've gotten so far away from that in the digital age. So it's, um, it's a real treasure. It's, a, it's, a, it's good for the soul. And I have to mention, you have triplets. So yeah. I guess when you take the kids to theater, it's a big event, right? It's, it's, and, and we have to remortgage our home <laughs> every time. We've, we're on the seventh mortgage now. <laughs> well, we love the fact that you come to theater. Um, so let's just roll things back a little bit. And um, I want to talk about some of your first philanthropic initiatives that you created specifically. Um, and let's just talk about the AIDS rides. Cause to me, that is just, um, they were so life, they were so life changing and, and such a different concept than what had been done before with regard to fundraising. Can you just give us some history and some context of how those came to be and what, where you were in your life and, and how that happened? It started for me in college. I, I organized a bike ride across America. 39 of us rode our bikes 4,200 miles across America to raise money for Oxfam. I had gotten involved with the Hunger Project. The Hunger Project set this Apollo-like goal of ending world hunger by the year 2000. I had never heard an NGO set an audacious goal like that before, and it, it inspired me to want to do something bigger than the normal campus fundraiser. So we did this cross-country bike ride, and you know, 4,200 miles, nine and a half weeks, grueling, um, incredible, experiencing the generosity of America, you know, people making us potluck suppers and bringing the media out and greeting us. And so that experience was very powerful. I'm gay. I moved to Los Angeles. It's the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody's dying of AIDS. There's nothing big you can do. You can, you know, do the AIDS walk on a Saturday morning, walk five kilometers. So it was great, but uh, it didn't measure up to your the, the grief you were feeling at the loss of friends in their 20s. And so I said, let's do something like that cross-country bike ride. Let's get let's get people to to dig deep physically and financially and do something that frightens them. And 
That was California AIDS ride, seven day bike ride from San Francisco to LA. We weren't looking for cyclists. You know, we weren't looking for the lycra clad athletes. We, we had this ragtag group of people, <laughs> you know, trash bags and their high school gym clothes, riding their bikes. It's sore twishies. <laughs> Yeah, and it was incredible, incredible. And Judith uh, did it uh, the second year, I think it was, in 1995. It grew. The first year, we had 478 people. The next year, we had 1,900 people. We did it from Boston to New York. We had, I think, 3,400 people. Um, so, you know, it struck a chord. People, it, people had a lot of grief and loss to deal with and they wanted to do something really big and 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 the AIDS ride spoke to that and that, and that was their real purpose. Some of our other conversations on this podcast, we've gone back to people's upbringings and um, the modeling that their families or their parents did for them when it comes to giving back or philanthropy. And I know that was certainly the case for me. I saw how my mother um, gave of herself um, both in time and energy and and writing checks too. Um, And that definitely set the stage no pun intended, uh, for me. And I just wondered, you know, how, what was your family life like? What was your upbringing like? Or how did you get into this philanthropic space? Yeah, my dad was a construction worker. My mom was a mom full time. You know, uh, their giving was giving to us. You know, they, they, uh, they worked 24 seven raising a family and, uh, you know, getting through hard times in New England winters when the ground was frozen and construction stopped and you were on unemployment for a while and hoping that you were going to make it, make it through. So for me, you know, I was, I was born the first full day of John Kennedy's presidency. So I, you know, I was born on January 21st, 1961. I grew up in the age of Vietnam. I grew up in the age of Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy and Apollo 11 that's quite a grab bag of influence. You know, it's Vietnam represents human futility for a young person. It represents frustration seeing Walter Cronkite on the CBS evening news every night with these body bags and burned out Vietnamese villages. And you're seven years old and you go, why can't someone stop this? Mm -hmm. Like, really? This is the limit of the imagination of the adults in this world. I, and I'm stuck with these people for the rest of my life. Um, uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, they're in their 30s and their 40s, Martin Luther King talking about love and justice. And then this unbelievably audacious, uh, risky adventure to the moon. And so I think those those things combined in me, you know, I want to do something to help humanity, but it's got to be big. It's got to be really big. And that's my message to this day to the sector is, Look at how big Elon Musk is dreaming. You ask him what his dream is, he doesn't skip a beat. He says, colonize Mars. Look at how big Jeff Bezos is dreaming. Look at how big Apple is dreaming. Why? We've been hypnotized in the nonprofit sector into thinking we've got to have these tiny little goals. Come on, let's break out of this thought prison and do really big things, really exciting things for the benefit of all those citizens most desperately in need of big, big vision. So that's really, um, and then, you know, Warner Earhart was a huge influence on me. Warner Earhart created Est and and the Hunger Project and spoke deeply about about possibility and taking responsibility for the world around you. So I felt very, I I was very fortunate to be a child of the the 60s and the mid 70s, you know. John Denver, the first, 
really the 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 first social cause uh, musician of the modern era. Yeah, there was Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and all and all those guys. But you know, John Denver and Windsong and Calypso and talking about world hunger and serving on Jimmy Carter's commission to uh, address world hunger. All those things influenced me. It was a very exciting time. So it's funny because a lot of people that have been on the podcast have talked about the little things, the random small acts of kindness, and you are sort of the polar opposite because for you, it's all about big and audacious. And whenever I think of the word audacious, I think of you, Dan, always. (laughs) So like, let's elaborate. Let's talk more about the big ideas and, you know, how do you, how do you envision that the we can impact the world and how do we mobilize around some of these big ideas? Well, first you have to have a big goal, right? You, you, let's say it's, we want to, we want to reduce suicides by 50% in the United States in the next five years, something that impossible. Well, if you don't start with that goal, there's not a snowball's chance in hell you're ever going to get close to it. And we're sort of allergic to goals. I mean, Apollo is the last great thing the United States put its you-know-what on the rear, mm-hmm. uh, on the line for, with the, with the whole world looking on and the chance that it could all blow up literally in our faces. And we don't, we don't have a goal for ending homelessness in America. We don't have a goal for um, reducing suicide. We don't have a goal for 100% illiteracy. We don't have goals for anything in, the, in this country. And so I think that's a huge thing, is setting a is setting a big goal. And do you think the reason we don't have goals is because people are risk adverse to them? You know, we don't want to be held accountable to them. We, we think it's somehow easier to not have goals. Like we're getting away with something by not having goals. The truth is it's sucks the aliveness out of us not to have a great goal. I mean, adult human beings are meant to do impossible things to challenge our intelligence, to challenge our psychology, to challenge our ability to relate with one another, to learn new things. You know, what's what's really fulfilling? Yeah, I mean, having kids is wonderfully fulfilling and being married and being in love, that's fulfilling. But but in terms of your brain, like learning something new, right? Learning mm-hmm. to play the piano and then actually getting good at it. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's annoying. Your fingers don't want to do it. Your brain doesn't want to do it. You don't want to practice. But man, when you can start to really play the piano, that is incredibly fulfilling. And it's the same with social issues. We don't want to go through the hard work of figuring out what it takes to actually collaborate with difficult people who have, you know, competition issues and ego issues. It's, well, that's where all the fun is and figuring out how do you overcome that? Mm-hmm. Nobody does that, you know? So, so I think big goals stated very specifically, not a more just, peaceful, verdant society, but on the moon nine years from now. Mm-hmm. That's specific, right? I think that's important. Then busting nonprofits out of this prison, this economic prison where they can't pay people well and they can't advertise and they can't take risks is number two. Number three is reorienting the way we're organized in our communities. Want to know why we haven't solved suicide or homelessness or veterans homelessness or child poverty or illiteracy in any of our in our communities? We're not organized to do it. We don't have NASAs in our community. So what we have is hundreds of organizations and churches and nonprofits and foundations and mayor's office and legislators offices. And they, by and large, don't coordinate with one another. They're all off doing their own little thing. And there's no one at the top. Can you imagine trying to get to the moon and you've got Grumman building the, 
the lunar module and you've got North American Aviation building the command module and you've got um, whatever it was, I forget, Ironworks building the, the, the launch pad and you've got ILC Dover building the moon suit, but none of them knows what the other is doing. And there's no agency there called NASA coordinating them. You know, it would be a Monty Python show. And that's what solving problems in our communities is like, because we're against a top-down approach. We don't want top-down approaches in our community. Well, that's bull. If I go into any one of your nonprofit organizations, you're organized top-down. There's a hierarchy. There's a CEO. There's vice presidents. There's development people. There's staff people. So let's give that one up, you know, and, and let's, let's create the bandwidth and the organizational structure to actually coordinate problem-solving. But the only thing that would motivate you to do that is to have a ginormous goal that requires you to be better organized. When you got no goal, you got no reason to organize yourself any better. You got no goal, you got no reason to bust out of prison, you know? So do you have any examples other than the, you know, in a more charitable way of, of where this has happened in a big audacious way and it's been successful or has no one done that? Well, no, there are organizations with big audacious goals. There aren't communities with big audacious goals. I have not seen an example of that. Um, and I've been all over the, the, the country mm -hmm. speaking for years. But you look at what Billy Shore is doing with No Kid Hungry, mm -hmm. no, no Child Hungry in America by the year 2030, and they're making great progress toward that. You look at Sight Savers, which deals with trachoma, the ancient illness that causes blindness. They've got a five-year goal for eradicating trachoma in 80% of the countries in which it is endemic, 20% of the remaining company, countries in the five years following that. Scott Harrison, Charity Water, we're bringing clean water to the entire world. Yeah. We're at 6% right now. I mean, he's actually measuring it. You, you, that's how you know someone's serious if they're actually measuring it. You, you know how you knew Kennedy was serious about going to the moon? Hmm. Because he said, I believe this nation should commit itself to the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. If you're not serious about going to the moon, it never even dawns on you that you got to get the guy back, right? So, um, yeah, so there are examples of brave nonprofits sticking their neck out for really audacious goals. The National Breast Cancer Coalition, you know, with their goal of uh, finding a way to end, end breast cancer within a definitive period of time. There are examples of it. There are too few of them. And there aren't any examples of a major American city doing them. You know, when I read Uncharitable, your book, and when we've talked, and, and also even your TED Talk, you know, this whole idea of taking the concept of philanthropy, of, of charity, of organizations, holding them accountable, basically taking them from the kids' table and moving them to the grown-ups' table and treating them like they're grown-ups and recruiting talent and spending money. Can you talk about that? Because no one can talk about that the way you do. And and I think that it's so important that, that charity, 501c3s and organizations start um, acting like they're for-profit companies and... Um, and that way, I think we'll see better results. So let me just articulate what my argument is not and what it is. What it is not is I'm not saying charities, you need to act more like business as if they're too stupid to act like business. What I'm saying is charities would act more like businesses in the way that it makes sense if the media didn't crucify them every time they did anything that mimics what business does. You know, if, if there was a charity that, that paid its CEO one one thousandth of what Jeff Bezos is making. 
that person would end up indicted. Mm -hmm. So the nonprofit sector is in this economic prison and the for-profit sector roams free. We let the for-profit sector pay whatever it needs to pay to get the best talent. We don't let the nonprofit sector do that. We want poverty wages. We let the, the for-profit sector inundate us with the most gorgeous, luxurious, decadent ads for beer and watches and fur coats. But we don't let nonprofits spend money on advertising because that's money that people think is taken away from the cause. So nonprofits are, are largely silent in this bombastic media environment. We don't let we, we let for profits take risk. We don't let nonprofits take risk with donor money. We let for profits amortize things over 20 years. We make nonprofits measure their overhead every 12 months. We have a stock market for for profits, you know, billions of dollars for Snapchat and TikTok and Tesla and Lyft. We don't have a stock market for charity. So you said at the beginning, you know, never afraid to be controversial. Here's what I'll say. Everybody's yapping about capitalism right now. Guess what? L look, first of all, corruption is the problem, not capitalism. And you get corruption in any system. But capitalism beyond corruption isn't really the problem. The problem is you prohibited the nonprofit sector from using capitalism. And then you want to blame the problem on capitalism. The 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 nonprofit sector is there to correct for whatever inequities the market creates. Mm -hmm. But then you treat it inequitably. So you give the for-profit sector a Learjet and the nonprofit sector a bicycle and you tell it, go solve all the problems that capitalism is, is generating. Well, if you don't let it use the tools of capitalism, how can it possibly compete? So it Again, capitalism isn't the problem. The lack of it in the nonprofit sector is the problem. Right. And as a former marketing person, you know, to me, the argument that resonated so much was this idea of being able to market and to advertise to get, you know, fundraising and donations, which is so prohibited. So I know that I, I talked to so many um, donors and they're you know, I want 100% of my donation to go to the cause, you know, I don't want anything to go to overhead. And this whole concept of overhead, it makes me cuckoo. And I've, I've had examples where, you know, I think you give a really good demonstration in your TED talk. If you had a choice of making $9 million versus $1 million, but you spend more overhead on advertising and marketing, you know, what would you choose? And there are so many charities and 501c3s that still would say, no, 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 we don't want to spend that much on advertising marketing. It doesn't look good. The optics aren't good. Well, here's the thing. Here's a simple example that any of your listeners can relate to. We launched the breast cancer three days with a loan of about $350,000 from essentially a, a donor, let's say. Now, if that donor had been traditional, they would say, I want that $350,000 to go to breast cancer research, every single penny of it, and I don't want it to go to anything else. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. You would have just purchased $350,000 worth of breast cancer research and not a penny more. And when that $350,000 was spent, that'd be the end of it. Instead, if you had invested it in our fundraising idea, we turned that $350,000 into $194 million net after all expenses in unrestricted money for breast cancer research. In five years, we did that. So you would have you would have made a really bad decision as with respect to breast cancer if you had put that money into breast cancer research instead of fundraising to multiply it into a lot more money. And this idea of fundraising, that it's just a dirty word, mm -hmm. 
No, it isn't. You know what it is? It's money invested in getting people up and off of their couches and away from their devices and invested in the great social issues of our time. Fundraising is, is an investment in civic engagement in a more engaged civil society. And guess what? There's no one else coming to do that. Apple isn't chartered to create a more engaged civil society. Political campaigns only are at election time to get out the vote. So if the nonprofit sector isn't allowed to do that, guess what kind of a civil society you're going to have? Well, we're starting to see. Pretty uncivil, yeah. Um, now everybody sees why I think Dan is the most passionate and educated person when it comes to this. Um, but let's talk about everybody. So you've written a book called The Everyday Philanthropist, and you've coined that term. And I have to confess, I've stolen that term, but I always credit you. Um, I love that idea of an everyday philanthropist. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, most people listening to this podcast um, are looking for a way to give back and are looking for some guidance and structure and strategy. So um, talk about what's in your book and um, and and shed the light on, on everybody on, on how we can be everyday philanthropists. Yeah, people think you got to be a billionaire to be a philanthropist. It's not true. The word philanthropy comes from the Latin philos anthropos, love of humanity. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you can be a minimum wage worker and give away more sacrificially than Bill Gates does. And that makes you a philanthropist. And you should think of yourself that way. Um, and the, you know, I've, I've written thick academic books, like my book on charitable, it, you know, it, it'll take you, it'll take you a week or two to read. And so there's a lot of economics in it. And I wanted to write something that was for the everyday person. Uh, so this fits in your pocket. It reads in an hour. It's got 32 tiny little micro chapters. It takes about two minutes to read each chapter. Instead of getting big endorsements from like the former president of Harvard University, like I did for my first book, I got an endorsement from my mother on this one. <laughs> this is the first thing Danny's ever written that I can actually understand. And that was the whole point. And if you are interested in giving back, this book will guide you. It's like a field guide for making a difference in your life. It'll teach you what the wrong questions are to ask. Like, Don't ask about overhead. Don't ask about salaries. It'll teach you the right questions to ask. What are their goals? What new ideas do they have? What disruptive innovations do they have? Um, and, and it'll teach you to think about what, what's my cause for life? What do I want my legacy to be? It's a lifestyle book that, that allows you to add giving back to your lifestyle in the most sophisticated way. And if, and if you take some of the advice in the book, you'll be doing better than Bill Gates actually is at it because there, there's a lot of places where he, he still acts in a very traditional way with respect to overhead and marketing and fundraising and all that. Well, I read the book over the summer and it's true. I read it in, you know, just a short time sitting out on my balcony here in quarantine. And, um, and it really made me think. And, you know, as a former marketing person, we're, I'm so used to strategic planning, but I never thought of using that same idea of strategic planning for my own personal sort of giving and philanthropy. And it really helped me create an action plan and and really think about what's important to me. And at the end of the day, analyze so many different causes and be able to connect dots and see where I wanted to focus my giving. And obviously it's flexible and it changes and you have to pivot and all that. But I wonder, do you take your own advice in the book and how so? Yeah, I take my own advice whenever I'm looking at an organization, I'm looking at, you know, what their goals are and what progress they're they're uh, making toward those goals. So yeah, I, I absolutely take, I mean, my life has kind of been dedicated to changing the way people think about charity. So that's, that's what I hope. That's what I hope they'll put on my gravestone. Not he kept the overhead low, but <laughs> he 
it changed the way we think about charity or health because there are a lot of other people working on it too. And what about your kids? How old are the, how old are the, are the kids now? The kids are, the kids are 13 and I just gave them a couple months ago, each a copy of the everyday philanthropist. And we're going to start doing a little book discussion guide on it. And then I'll give them some money and I'll say, all right, now you guys decide what cause interests you, what cause moves, moves you the most. Um, start to do some research on some organizations in that cause area and start to look at which ones actually excite you and then call them up and talk to them and then think about giving them some of this money. And to you, the money is the more important piece of it as opposed to giving of your time or your energy, or is it a combination? Um, yeah, they need money. You know, <laughs> Apple doesn't say, hey, would you come volunteer, put iPhones together? You know, <laughs> uh, look, volunteering is great if it's in addition to the money you're going to give, mm -hmm. but instead of it, you know, and, and look, if you can't afford to give and volunteering is the only way you can do it, that's lovely. That's wonderful. But these organizations need money. These are massive, massive social problems, logistical, um, of, of massive logistical scale, and you need financial resources to deal with these things. So you've been talking about all this for years, and then suddenly last March, the world changed. Um, has COVID changed the way you think about philanthropy? It's only solidified my resolve that, you know, you see all these nonprofits that have been struggling because they have no cash reserves because we, we don't want them to have any cash reserves because if they have cash reserves, that means they're somehow robbing the poor of money. And so now, you know, they're going out of business in droves. So it just points out with grave lucidity how shallow our thinking has been about the nonprofit sector. And it's also pointing out the lack of organization in our communities, you know, I mean, I had some symptoms a week ago or so they passed and it turned out to be nothing. But I mean, the amount of work that I had to do to try and figure out how to get a COVID test and I, and I never actually could, you know, uh, it's like, seriously, this is how we're organized in our community. No wonder the thing is, is rampant. Yeah. Uh, I was just telling everybody before you came on the, on the line today that I just went and got a COVID test today. Um, it's negative. Um, but I was also having a few symptoms and I got nervous, but you're right. It, like as a educated person, it was so hard for me to try to figure out how do I, how do I do this? I'm going on every website and trying to find out where can I get a, you know, a COVID test. And it was really hard to figure out. No appointments available. No appointments available. Exactly. Or you can go, you know, I'm here in LA right now, go to Dodger stadium and line up for 12 hours. Yeah. So, um, and it, again, it's this, also the have and have nots. I was willing to pay for my test. So I was able to get it and other people can't afford to do that. Yeah. So, um, so rewinding this a little bit, I think a lot of people probably that are listening to this podcast are Broadway theater goers or fans. And I'm thinking that, you know, I know that one of my causes that's important to me is, you know, the arts and arts education. Um, so just you know, as a last question, sort of any advice on what you would say regarding trying to support arts education and um, and what's going on right now on Broadway? You know, so many thousands and thousands of people that even have, you know, businesses that are, you know, ancillary to Broadway are have lost their livelihoods. And it's a really, really tough time. Um, we've had Tom Viola from uh, Broadway Cares on the podcast, and um, they've been giving a lot of money to the Actors Fund and, and trying to support people who need it right now. But in your big, audacious way, like what advice would you give? Well, you know, think outside of the box. Is there an opportunity for consolidation? Is this a moment where, you know, 
50 of us need to merge together to become one force that speaks with one voice instead of being diluted uh, by 50? Um, and, and how can we how can we change our thinking, the, 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 the old thinking that got us to this place into radical thinking that takes us into a new future? Uh, but you have to think about um, what is the impact we, we want to have as a group? And, and is that impact more effectively arrived at by joining hands rather than being 100 separate organizations? I love the idea of joining hands. I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm going to thank you so much for being part of this podcast. And anyone who's interested, go check out the episode page because there'll be links there so you can go and uh, find out where Dan's books are and listen to his TED Talk. I strongly recommend it. And thank you again, Dan. All right. Thanks, Jen. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway Gives Back. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals with Brittany Bigelow and music by Eric Becker at Broderick Street Music. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, and friend, Jim Lochner, and to Katie and Yo at BPM, Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency, the Charity Network, and to my fiance, Glenn Weiss, who is always my consultant. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.